that is to say those of you who are not Stanford graduates, that, that Harvard is the top-ranked medical school for research and teaching, and has been for some time. Uh, Professor Hazelstein here, long-term member of the Harvard faculty, and remains an advisor to various departments here in, uh, in connection with some of the ventures that he runs. There is a four or five hundred page booklet of his achievements since kindergarten. And I'm going to spare you that, but you do have some notes about him uh, if, if you'd like to check. Let me just say a couple of things uh, besides the incredible power, intellectual power of Harvard Medical School. Uh, you're bankrupting us. You're bankrupting us as a nation. And that's because healthcare is sucking all the money. All of the amazing technology, all of the longevity, all of your access to fabulous physicians it costs a fortune. Healthcare is costing globally somewhere like a fifth of expenditures, as you'll hear, and it's rising. That's why there seems to be less money left over for education of young people. That's why there seems to be less money left over for infrastructure. And many of the other things of investing in the future, because we're investing in our own longevity. We used to invest in our future when we were young and back in college. But now, this gigantic generation of people, known as the baby boomers, are in demanding health care instead. So it's very important for us as societies to be able to manage this problem, to make it less zero-sum, to be able to manage health care costs and health care innovations and investment in people's health in a way that it doesn't detract from our ability to invest in the future of the people behind us, those who are still demanding more education than healthcare at their ages and need the kind of infrastructure that we enjoyed as we were coming through the life cycle and still are. So Professor Hazeltine is unusual in that he's able to bridge both the uh, medical research where he's published more than 200 papers, and the investment side, the technology and investment side, uh, which we're interested in today. So please join me. Very warm welcome, Giant in Healthcare, Professor Hazelstein. Well, thank you for that over-the-top introduction. Um, I should also say that my, a lot of my current work is focused on precisely the problem that he just presented, which is how do we control our healthcare costs while delivering excellent healthcare, not just to the few, but to the many. And it's the reason I created a foundation called Access Health International. We work globally on the exact problem that he discussed in addition to problems of health equity, because in many places, as costs rise and even as they don't rise, you have uh, dramatic problems of health equity here in the United States, and as a matter of fact, in most countries, with Europe being the primary exception. Um, but let me reflect a little bit about the conversation you've already heard this morning uh, about longevity. Uh, Aubrey de Grey is a great friend of mine. Uh, we've uh, worked together for many years in uh, different capacities. He has the, uh, we, we all need a visionary who has a, a quixotic goal in mind. And he has been a great stimulus for many of us in the field. And it's a, uh, it's a pleasure to be once again, after a number of years on, on a stage uh, uh, with Aubrey. One of the things you talked about is extending working life. I'll tell you just a couple of uh, stories in that regard. My sister, who's a couple of years older than me, she won't mind my saying that she's uh, 78 now, a year ago was given a lifetime tenure job at the University of Texas. Her husband, at two years older, was given a lifetime job in the physics department. Uh, I myself am over 70. I'll be 75 uh, in, about, in a few days. Um, 
receiving salaries from businesses I've started, creating jobs through a foundation and a number of new businesses, and uh, writing a lot of books. I'm very much employed and employing a lot of people. Uh, my brother, who's a couple of years behind me, is, uh, had many careers. Uh, he was a uh, scientist. He was a uh, developer of uh, advanced fighter aircraft virtual simulations, which you just heard about. He became head of technologies for all of the Disney Corporation, including ABC. He then became head of our, all of our intelligence uh, uh, research and development, as well as some operations, as uh, deputy director of, uh, Directorate of National Intelligence. And now he develops toys and toys for boys. Uh, so there are many careers for those of us who have the energy and the uh, education. And I think it's something you can all look forward to, not your second or third career, but your fourth or fifth career. Uh, and that may be encouraging, because I'm still contributing to Social Security, as far as I know, uh, both directly uh, and uh, indirectly. I am an optimist by nature. And I think I'm an optimist by experience. I look over my 70 years, and what do I see in the area of health and economics? What I see in the area of economics is enormous wealth. Just think, before the Iron Curtain fell, how much wealth there was in the world and how much wealth there is today. It's enormous, whether it's 10 or 20 or 30-fold, I can't tell you. You can probably tell me more precisely, but it's a heck of a lot more money around for you to invest than there was before. That's fantastic. When you look at health, I was terrified. We couldn't go in more in groups of three to go outside when I was a kid to play because of polio. Polio was gone, virtually eradicated. I had a smallpox vaccine, and my kids and grandchildren don't because there's no more smallpox. Those are really big medical advances. But something more subtle. I remember traveling across the United States as a young kid. We were on two-lane highways. And Phoenix was a dusty cow town. It's enormously wealthy now. And look at the roads. I bicycled around Europe when it was black with soot, which some of you will remember. It was not cleaned up. I was in Tokyo in 1960 when it was still flat as a pancake. They were carrying buckets of, let's say, call them honey buckets on their shoulders. Uh, it's another euphemism. And uh, the cars were mostly three-wheel. What, what's happened today? I watched that whole thing. I watched China grow, Taiwan grow, Korea grow. When I went to India in the mid-60s, I walked over dead and dying bodies, literally dead and dying people in Calcutta. Not the whole country, but in Calcutta specifically. Today, it's an amazing transformation. That's reason for great optimism. So what do I see today as I look ahead? Uh, and I'm going to talk mostly about medical technologies. I see a very, very good future. Maybe not the future that Aubrey described, at least not yet, but I see a very positive future. First of all, biology. I spent my life in the biological sciences, and I can tell you with great confidence, nobody ever imagined we would be where we are today when I began my work. I knew that we had great opportunities. I could see that the advent of understanding DNA would open up tremendous opportunities. But none of us understood how powerful those opportunities would be. Understanding the nature of cells, we didn't really understand what those consequences could be. Back 50 years ago, what did we think about IT? With big computers or whole rooms that were barely cranking out things, and it was certainly not something you could have access to. And in material science, we knew that we could advance, but we didn't know where we would go. So let me take those four topics and just touch on a little bit about what some of the opportunities are. Uh, I created the first uh, practical genomics company once I saw the genomics revolution coming. And what it's been able to do, what most people think genomics does, is tell you more about yourself tells you more about your ancestry, and it tells you more maybe about what's going to happen to you. Even today, that aspect of genomics is pretty much like an oracle. It may give you an answer, like protect Athens with a wall of wood, 
but that's not really helpful. You don't really get specific advice about what to do, not to do, except in rare cases. But what genomics has done is it's transformed our ability to diagnose what you've got. We can now much more precisely tell what you individually have, what kind of cancer you've got, what kind of infectious disease you've got, and do it pretty quickly and very precisely, which means we have a much better idea of how to treat you. That's the first thing genomics has done and is continuing to improve, differential specific diagnosis. People call it by all sorts of names, personalized medicine, precision medicine, but really it's a progression, a steady pro progression in medicine toward diagnosing what you may have so you can intervene. And it's done something even better. It's given us the starting point to approach almost every disease, including the processes that Aubrey was talking about. Yeah. Once you have the complete blueprint of all the information that's in your cells, how it's used under different conditions, how it gets degraded, you have starting points. When we began our genomics work, there are maybe 200 topics we could work upon. That's it, all of bacteria, all of human biology. We didn't have enough knowledge. Genomics short-circuited that process. So you could begin to pinpoint exactly what you wanted to work on. Doesn't mean you would get a drug quickly. You would start the project process of drug development, but it shortened that process by 30 or 40 years to get the start. And we are just now beginning to get the payoff of that in terms of new medicines. New medicines based on that. They may not even be called genomics medicines. To you, they'll look like normal medicines. To the scientists who discovered it, they use a brand new tool of understanding all the genes and how they change in health and disease to pinpoint where to start. It's a remarkable transformation. And if that weren't enough, that transformation is transforming material sciences. It is now conceivable that we will have a complete carbon economy without fossil carbon. Why? We can pull it from the atmosphere, the carbon dioxide, use it for our purposes, and if our purposes is as crude as to burn it, we can burn it and it will just go right back up into the atmosphere. That's possible. It's only 50% more expensive than pumping it out of the ground today. And with some advances, we can make it as the same price and perhaps an even lower price. And that's only for the cheapest use of carbon, which is to burn it. Every other use is now possible that we can take the full power of the biological world, because we don't have to grow things anymore. You just have to determine its DNA sequence and you have all its working parts in your hands and you can recombine them. It's called, I call it constructive biology. Other people call it synthetic biology, but it's a fabulous field. We in the US are under investing. I can tell you at least five Chinese cities are investing between 200 million and a billion dollars a year in what they call biological manufacturing. They are firm believers that the future of our economy, carbon economy is going to be independent of fossil fuels. So that's another area that was unanticipated. And I've had the pleasure of participating in a number of uh, ventures that are investing in that. We created actually the first one uh, that created some products and there are now many, many more. That's for genomics and understanding DNA. And there are many, many other aspects I could go into. What about our cells? Undoubtedly, you are aware of one of the greatest breakthroughs in cancer medicine which is to have your own immune system fight the cancer. And that's almost diametrically opposed to what I'd call the middle phase of cancer therapy. The first phase of cancer therapy, well, the very first phase by the Egyptians and the uh, Greeks was to cut it out. But they called it cancer because it's like a crab. That's their name for, for crab because it grabbed onto you and it was hard to cut out. That's why it's called cancer. Well, they cut out what they could. The next took a long, long time, 2,000 years almost, before we realized we could kill cancer a little bit before we killed people. That's kind of a crude way of doing it, but that's really what we did. We used x-rays or we used chemicals, and there was a little bit of difference between killing the cancer and killing you. And I can tell you working at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, we balance that equation all the time, and the true heroes 
are you who put your bodies on the line when you knew you were in experimental cancer treatment and you might be in the, the part that we actually killed. So that was chemotherapy and the types of cancer therapy that came along before. Then came the revolution that said, we can pinpoint what's wrong with your cancer. We can make a drug that's specific for your cancer. That sounded great, and it is in a way great, but it ran into another problem. And the problem is, the fundamental nature of cancer is it's protean. And what I mean by protean is that ancient god, you grab it here and it would change there. It changes, that's why it's cancer. It can adapt to you. It's a highly adaptive, changeable system. And the moment we threw a drug at it, just like the first drug we used for HIV, it res became resistant. So targeted chemotherapy for your cancer for one target isn't sufficient. You'll need two or three targets to go after, as we have learned from combination chemotherapy for HIV and for cancer. But, thank goodness, there's a new theory. Now, it was, when I first came across the street to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, one of the founding principles was we were going to be able to use immunology, your immune system, to fight cancer. Now, that idea actually is a very old idea. It comes from about 1905, 1906, when people first learned about immunity. But the problem is, how do you get it to fight cancer and not fight you. So it was a long time in coming. And, and I can tell you, when I first came to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, it was 1976. We had the prof really profound thinkers in, in immunology. My boss then, in fact, got a Nobel Prize in immunology. The whole thrust was to try to figure out how to use the immune system to do that. But it turned out that we didn't know enough about the immune system. And the immune system is a very finely regulated system. So it sees the foreign world, but it doesn't see you. And sometimes it messes up and you get an autoimmune disease. And how can you adjust it so it can see something that's almost you, your cancer, but not kill the rest of you? It was a really tough problem. And it took about 40 years of dissecting all the complex signals. And it's a really complex feedback mechanism. But that's what the whole immunology community was working on. And the really first breakthroughs for that was a young man. I actually helped hire him to Dana-Farber. He started understanding enough and figured out if you did this with, in mice, that maybe it would work. It did work in mice. And then there were some great leaders who took that into, into human. It's cell therapy using your own cells, unlocking your own potential. And what we're doing now is treating a number of cancers that couldn't have been treated before. Now, it's not a panacea. It's just one more step in what will be, I hope, the elimination of most cancers. We still need to control its side effects because, predictably, a side effect of immune therapy is autoimmunity. And in some cases, it's a lethal autoimmunity. So you've got to learn how to control it. And the collective group of cancer therapists are now learning to do that. But that isn't the only use of cells. There are many other uses of cells. And the hope is that we will be able, one thing we can do now is we can take each one of your cells, almost any cell in your body, a skin cell, for example, and turn that cell into the equivalent of your fertilized egg. Mm -hmm almost any of your cells. And from that, we can develop, and we're getting better and better at developing very specialized tissues. Not just cells, tissues. You can begin to develop whole little pieces of brain, whole pieces of blood vessel, whole pieces of almost any part of your body. And we're learning how to do that with your self-same cell. Now, are we going to be able to use your cells where we've turned the genetic clock back to zero, which we have done, that's what it means to be a fertilized egg, genetic clock gets turned back to zero by a combination of five genes and proteins that you stick into that cell, can we use that to help replace your worn parts? Well, when at first realization that that might be possible, we were enormously optimistic. I'm sure that we can do it, but it's going to be a very long time. Because let me give you something simple. We thought we would be able to build a blood vessel 
within a couple of years, that was 20 years ago, we can't do it yet. It's a long, hard process. And one of the things we've come to realize is that there is a lot more information that goes into making up your body than the information that's in DNA. DNA is like one millionth of the complexity. The complexity of DNA is about one millionth or less of the complexity for how your body actually works. I'll give you an, an example. One of the most profound questions I was asked a number of years ago by Danny Hillis, the guy who invented um, uh, parallel computing, uh, was if I put a line of computer code into a whole program, I don't change the program. I put one gene into a muscle tissue and you can grow a whole blood vessel system. Where's that information? It's not only in the gene that I put in. You have a lot of information in your body. Mm -hmm. So we are learning that and we are getting to the point. Now, a couple of other revolutions I wanna talk about very briefly. One of them is material sciences. We know that material science is advancing at a very rapid rate, miniaturization. But how fast is it, how far is it advancing? It's advancing, so we're finally beginning to able to use materials and architect them at the same level that your body is architected. Did you ever wonder what your specification was, your, your, your uh, engineering specification was for your body? Well, I'll tell you the level you're architected, what your engineering specification is. It's one-tenth of an atomic radius. That is how fine you are architected. Your pieces that make you work have to be in the right spatial orientation with each other within one to two-tenths of an atomic radius. Otherwise, things get screwed up. If your genes move that atom just a couple of uh, parts of an atomic radius out of whack, that piece doesn't work anymore. Well, we are finally getting to be able to engineer materials almost if not at that level. And that means we can integrate them with your body. The future that we can see is integration of your body with machines. Now, we are pretty good at doing it like my glasses from the outside. We're getting better at doing it with robotics to let your body move. Uh, there's some very nice things. If you have, can't move very well, there's things that'll help you move better or get stronger from the outside. We're beginning with some of the things we do inside ourselves. But we're beginning now to be able to do it with your brain. And that's a very exciting area. For example, with people with epilepsy, they can now have access to their brain. They can put a series of 20 microprobes into the back of the brain where your optic signals come in. And they can reproduce what you are looking at with great accuracy. I don't know if you've ever seen these pictures of the actual photograph or the photograph that comes or the image that comes from these 200 different pixels in the back of your brain, but it's almost identical. I could tell the difference between everybody at this table absolutely easily, or everybody in this room from that picture, and so could you. That means we're getting to the point where we can do really brain-machine interfaces. And they're now instruments that can read your intention, and if you're a paraplegic, allow you to move. That is a whole nother very exciting area. And finally, the area of IT, and let me get to the point that you made. One of the things I spend a lot of time doing with the foundation is looking for the best examples of delivering high quality care at low cost for many people. And one of the engines, there are two engines I would ask you to think about that are making that possible. One of them, of course, is IT. And the second is organization, systems organization. Mm. So in that regard, I would just say, the systems we have built in the past to deal with our health issues, our big hospitals. The systems that we need for our future is distributed healthcare. One system I just wrote a book about called World Class has taken a first big step toward that. It's the NYU Langone. Rather than doing most of their surgeries in the hospital, 80% are now done outside the hospital because modern technology allows you to do that. 80% of all medical care is outside the hospital, and that's without even going to community and home, which is the next two steps. It is enormously cost savings. They were about to bankrupt their university. They're now making about a billion dollars profit a year. 
translate that into another system, savings, very efficient. It wouldn't work if you didn't have a seamless IT system. That's the other thing that IT allows you to do. It allows you to know every single thing that's happening in that hospital. And almost nobody builds systems like this, but it's integrated from garbage collection to how many blood units a surgeon is using, and it's vertically and horizontally transparent. And it's real time. And it allows you to actually know what's happening in the center and in the periphery. So IT is important. And systems restructuring is important to solve the problems of how all this wonderful technology is going to be affordable and accessible, not just to you with privilege, but to every one of our citizens in an equitable basis in every part of the world. So I am, I began life as an optimist. I am still an optimist. And uh, I would say that in, from the, your perspective, health is a sure bet. It's a sure bet because it's the one growth engine which has continued to grow. It grows faster, as you well know, than any other sector. And it gives you many, many opportunities. Short-term investments, long-term investments, real estate investments, housing investments, high-tech investments, IT investments. It's a great area for you. Not the only area, of course, but I think a great area. Uh, and it's a need that is growing, grows with demography, it grows with age, and it grows with income uh, that's happening all over the world. So with those comments, I'll close and open it up to a few questions. Thanks. Thank you. Maybe I'll ask the first question, and then we'll go to the audience. I have many questions, of course, but could you talk a little bit about the ethics dimension of this? Um, the, the bioengineering is mm -hmm. moving very quickly. How should we understand the relationship the, of the bioengineering to ethical or social questions? Um, that, of course, is not a simple question. It's a uh, I didn't very say complicated it. <laughs> question. But let me just give you, uh, I'll answer by taking a tiny, tiny slice of that uh, question, uh, which is fertility. And it's the one where people are certainly exercised with the uh, ability to change the human genome uh, permanently um, through multiple future generations. I'll tell you two stories. Um, I mentioned my sister, uh, who has uh, got this wonderful new job. Uh, but one of the things she's done in her life is she introduced in vitro fertilization to the east coast of the United States. She's a, a PhD and a, a, a MD and an OBGYN. And she was one of the very first people to bring IVF to the US. Mm -hmm. Well, it was about 10 years after it was brought to Europe. Why? Because of ethical considerations. Everybody was saying one man could have 100 children, 1,000 children, as if anybody wanted <laughs> that. And it turns out no, very people don't want it. And that's your reaction is a good reaction because everybody uses IVF and it's not ethically compromised now. People, on the whole, with reproductive technologies aren't crazy. They don't want monsters. And you know, when, we, when people used to say you could clone and cloning came along, you'd make an army, I used to say, why bother to clone? You take any 15-year-old man or woman, send them through basic training, and they'll kill a baby for you. No need to clone, right? We have that in us. So I think that many of the ethical concerns that people have when it actually comes to how we use these technologies aren't warranted. So that's um, one consideration. And then I'll give you another. I gave a flip answer once to a group at the Aspen Ideas Festival where they asked me, do I think that we should change the germline? And I said, no, I think that wouldn't be ethically feasible. And about four families came up to me and said, doctor, I want you to reconsider what you've just said. We have, and each one of them told me a terrible story about cancer in their family, about mental disease in their family, and you're telling me that if you had the power to change that, you wouldn't eliminate this disaster that's been multi-generation for my family? You wouldn't do it? I never say no again after that. It was a transforming experience because what I would say is, is not for 
we who create the tools to decide what the ethics are. It's you who are the users to decide what should be used through a process of open discussion and hopefully open discussion in a society which allows that. Okay, thank you. We have 25 minutes for questions, so plenty of time. Who, who's brave enough to go first? Yes, please. Hi, uh, Mary Pugh from the Washington State Investment Board, uh, board member. Um, my question actually comes from all of the presentations we've heard this morning. And I'm curious if you would talk a little bit about how our healthcare system has to change um, in order to be able to incorporate some of the very uh, innovative um, uh, presentations, technologies, those kinds of things within the construct of um, oftentimes while we have a great healthcare system, many people can't get in to get a doctor's appointment. There's a lot of bottlenecks. Um, and the technology sounds like it's evolving quite a bit, but many of the doctors probably don't have it. So there's probably an age issue uh, with regard to, for example, younger surgeons tend to use a lot of the technology. Maybe some others don't. How do we have to change? How can, how can this actually be executed in a good way? Um, the, I think the solutions to these issues are clear what you need to do at this point. The issues are how societies are going to implement those and at what speed and for what benefit. So what I described very briefly was a future in which healthcare is distributed. You do have centers of research excellence and you have centers of uh, complex care which are needed, which are the tertiary quaternary hospitals. But outside of that, you have a, a distributed healthcare network where most people get their healthcare, even complex operations, in outpatient centers located in their communities. They have community health centers that do not only treatment, but also education and prevention. And you have home care, which increasingly you need for elder populations, whether they're mental they have mental disease, or whether they have physical in, uh, incapacities of one, one type or another. So the distributed healthcare model, as I think, that is, is the one that is patient-friendly, it's located nearby, and it's much less expensive to manage because you're not managing hospitals. And I think it's the only way we can cope with the changes. Now, that's one aspect. Second question is how you pay for that. I think the way to pay for that is through collective payment, capitation, or large populations that you are responsible. Now, whether it should be state or whether it should be private or whether the mix should be, probably tends on your country. My preference, where I've seen things work probably the best, is a single payer with private providers. The reason for that is when you have public payer and public provider you can't change it very easily. Whereas if you, have single, if you have public payer and private providers, you can actually incentivize people to compete. I think that is, for me, the most rational system, and it's one that's used successfully on the periphery of the East of, uh, of Asia. The, the Japanese and the Koreans and the Taiwanese who do so well basically do it that way. So I think that is a, um, a, uh, a, a good system. Now, and by the way, it's the same whether you're a developing country. When we look and we have a lot of operations in India and other places, China, um, Philippines, it's what they need as well. It, only you, you don't you maybe translate a village instead of a home as a, as a most distant place. So I think it is doable. Um, and over time, I think it will be done in most places because of the, of, of the costs. However, that's not to say there's going to be, isn't going to be very serious resistance by the entrenched players. And the more successful you are in some ways, the harder you are, the harder it's going to be to change to something different. But if you think from your perspective of all the technologies which are required and all the structures that are required to make that transformation, it's a huge investment opportunity. Because it's about whether you, it also, by the way, includes integration of social welfare with medicine. That's another big change that has to occur because a lot of care and preventive care that you need is actually social, not the doctor. 
So that's another change that's going to occur. So if you look at that whole spectrum of change of up to 20% or more of an economy, if you include social welfare and health, is an enormous opportunity. Mm -hmm. And it's one that's never going to go away. Yes, please. Nina. Thank you. Um, these are really big issues for us pension. Oh, it's Nina Bergring, Veritas Pension in Finland. These are, yeah, these are really big issues for it's our pension family. systems. How do we get people to live longer and stay healthier longer and working longer? I understand, based on my little reading, being a simple investor, that the preventive care bit, uh, that we could do a lot more in terms of preventive care. So what I've understood it is that it is actually our diets and people not moving that is causing the huge explosion in obesity, diabetes 2, Alzheimer's, etc. So how do, what do you say about all of that? What if we could change um, our food system so that people in the metabolism, which was also mentioned here earlier, would run more smoothly? Could we care for our people in that sense more effectively? I don't think the, I would I would actually ask the question a little bit differently. It isn't can we care for people? Can people care for themselves better? Because no one can make me change. I can't make my children change. I can't make my wife change. It's very difficult. The only person I have control over is me. So that's the first thing I would say. Second thing is what is it that gives better people incentives to, to be better? And there are many people who've tried things like there's a great scheme in South Africa to give people a lot of benefits, uh, free exercise, uh, free benefits, if they are demonstrably improve their lifestyle. Uh, it's an insurance company that does that, and they've had some very positive results, albeit with limited populations. They haven't been able to be successful in the United States, at least to date. Um, let me answer your question a slightly different way. And that is, in the, a distributed healthcare system, the goal is to keep people healthy, not only to prevent them from getting sick in the first place, but if they do contract some illness, a chronic illness, to manage it so it has the most positive outcome for them possible. I believe that a system that's constructed to touch people's lives personally with personal social workers, with personal healthcare workers, that may not be doctors, with personal information systems that actually observe what they are doing and recommend changes is probably a better way to do it than we're doing it now through more public health messages. Often in public health, you see what to me is not a contradiction, but it appears to them to be a contradiction, which is, the way they would frame it is a dollar for prevention, a dollar for treatment is a dollar not for prevention. I see the new treatment paradigms as preventive primarily and postponing secondary and treatment only as a third option. Tell us a little bit about the China stuff you're doing. You're part of this US-China uh, health group, uh, and uh, you meet frequently. China, in some ways, is, is even a bigger laboratory for a lot of what you're talking about, given that their structures are being put in place rather than legacies that must be overcome. Right. Um, you know, people talk about China as there's one China. Those of you who work in China know there are many, many Chinas. And that's good in many respects because what you discover is whatever you can think about doing an experiment, they're doing it. Uh, they're experimenting with distributed health care. Mm -hmm. They're distributing with big medical cities and 10,000 bed hospitals, mm -hmm. right? All at the same time. How that's gonna work out is very difficult to see because um, at this point, the primary incentives, local incentives, because of their tax structure and other structures, are to build, not to operate. Yeah. That's their fundamental incentive at the local. If you're a mayor, mm -hmm. you don't collect your taxes, you send them to Beijing. But you control your real estate. Yeah. So they become, so the emphasis is on building, 
and a distributed healthcare network is light on building and high on operations. Yeah. So until that overall system changes, and I believe it is slowly changing, you have big five and 10,000 hospitals being built. I, uh, the way I would express it here in this room, I express it here in this room about uh, uh, eight, 10 days ago to the US-China Healthcare Summit, of which I'm the chair, is that's putting multiple heavy stones around your neck, which your great-grandchildren are going to have to carry. Uh, that's basically what building massive healthcare systems uh, of the traditional system are. Um, I would say one thing that I find really admirable about the, the current Chinese system is that they are really thinking about these issues and they are trying different experiments. Mm. Uh, what they're going to do with the results of those experiments and how generalized they're going to be, I think, is, is up in the air. They are open for business in terms of listening mm. and willing to execute experiments. How they actually roll those out is anybody's guess. What you can say now is their current system is not a very good system. Uh, the idea that you should, you, the history was to eliminate the barefoot doctor, yes. put everything into the private sector, they were sure, that sure didn't work. Mm -hmm. The system they're now building, which is a mixture of public and private, mm -hmm. I think is unlikely to work. I think that they, over time, have an opportunity uh, to build some very interesting new systems, but it's, it's uh, a toss-up at this point. Okay. Can you state your name and organization, please, with the microphone? <laughs> <laughs> so Colin Tate from Connexus Financial. Uh, thank you very much, William, for your uh, uh, outstanding presentation. A two-part question. Uh, in 1985, I was uh, unfortunately experienced 13 HIV-AIDS-related funerals. Uh, pretty heavy thing to take in life. Can you please explain the discoveries that you made and also the economics of those kinds of discoveries? Um. I was one of the uh, first AIDS researchers and first people to actually understand the dimension of the AIDS wave um, or what was, what was coming. Uh, I would say, I was asked uh, over the lunch, uh, the tea break, uh, what is your proudest achievement uh, when you look back over your career? And my answer was creation of a, a societal institutional response to the AIDS epidemic. I said about that very deliberately. I was a cancer researcher, and when AIDS came along, and I was a retroviral researcher amongst others, mm. and when AIDS came along, I realized what its full potential could be to devastate populations. It was a time when most people did not. To give you an idea, Discover Magazine did a look back of mistakes it may have made in coverage. And it only found one major one, which was they predicted that the AIDS epidemic would not be a serious threat. They then asked how they did that. And they asked 20 AIDS researchers, would it be? 19 said no. One said yes. That was me. Now, why was I able to see things a little bit differently from my very intelligent colleagues? The answer was that I look always at a global picture of society. I look at history. I look at psychology. I look at human behavior, and I look at how technology fits into that. And that's what any businessman should really do, because mm -hmm. a business is only a service that meets a perceived human need. Well, in this case, I was perceiving, I knew what the virus was likely to be, and I knew that a scientific response would not be enough, because what you needed is a societal response. You needed to create what we had for cancer. Destigmatize cancer, destigmatize AIDS. Mobilize public awareness, mobilize public awareness of cancer, mobilize public awareness of AIDS. Get research dollars. You had to somehow get the research dollars to do it. I'll tell you, in 1985, the incremental budget recommended for AIDS research was $1 million. Mm. $1 million. That's because under Reagan and everybody, they didn't think it was going to be a big problem. I knew that wasn't enough, and when Rick Hudson got sick, and of you may remember that event, I took that as an opportunity to lobby Congress and get $362 million in supplemental appropriations, 
And it all of a sudden became a really interesting scientific problem, from a problem nobody wanted to work on because there was no money to work on it. Same thing with the pharmaceutical industry. They, I would go to all the pharmaceutical CEOs and heads of research and say, you gotta work on this problem. And the answer was, well, we don't have money this year and you know, heart disease is a bigger problem. So what I did is I got the federal government, or I was then an advisor to the government, I said, look, do what you do for cancer. Give big grants to academics with enough money that provided they have a, a pharmaceutical partner and you give money through academics to the pharmaceutical industry to get them started. Once they get started, they'll realize there's a lot of money in it and they'll continue because it's very hard for them to kill projects once they begin. That worked. Destigmatizing. I worked with Princess Diana and Elizabeth Taylor to create organizations where you saw these well-known figures hugging AIDS men and holding AIDS babies. So the answer isn't a simple answer. Through my cancer work, I figured out combination chemotherapy would do it and figured out how to get the targets into the people's hands so they could develop. And we were instrumental in developing the first uh, protease inhibitor, which together with the ACT was the first drug that allowed people to live more than one or two years uh, when used in combination. So the answer is, is not a simple answer. It, it, you have to look at a problem like HIV it's like, it's not a human dimension, it's like an earthquake that appeared, it's a natural phenomenon. You know, look at it for what it is, not what you want it to be, and then you have to realize it's gonna be with you for a while, and what can society do to protect ourselves? And um, I would say it's one of our humans' great successes, and gives me cause for optimism. Here was a brand new disease, and we were in very short time able to understand it, combat it, and we're on the edge, at least in some places of the world, controlling it. Yes, please, Olivia, and then Joel. Um, Let me just say, Olivier. I couldn't have done any of this without a lot of other people involved. There are a tremendous number of people who along the way uh, came along and helped. Olivier Rousseau from the French Pension Reserve Fund. I have a question on our good old friends, the infectious diseases. How big of a risk that most antibiotics will be overwhelmed by new uh, resistant bacteria? Um, I'm not particularly worried about that. Uh, it is a problem, but we have sufficient science and technologies that should they appear to be new infectious diseases resistant organisms, or even new organisms appear, we have both the social and the technical means to solve it. Let me give you an example. Uh, Ebola, okay, Ebola was a new disease that appeared. It's actually an old disease, but it's a new one for our perception. And um, right now we have effective drugs and we have vaccines that will work for it if it should spread. But that isn't the lesson I want to draw. When it spread in its original sites in the Congo, there was no simple way to control it. You had to fly a lot of people in. The moment it got into Nigeria, stopped. One or two people got infected. Why? Did they have the drugs? No. They had a healthcare system that recognized that people were sick and had the ability to contain it using standard old quarantine methods. So the moment you have a functioning healthcare system that functions even at a very basic level, you can control some of the most drastic um, infectious diseases. So yeah, we're gonna get a lot more resistance, but we have technical means and we have social means to control it. Thank you. Joel Whidden with Bridgewater Associates. First, thank you for all you've done for humanity. Um, question is on sort of the status of public versus private funding for research and innovation. And your thoughts on that? Um, you need both, uh, public and private funding. Uh, you need the government funding because it's a hell of a lot bigger. Than, let's take the Gates Foundation, big foundation, bigger, almost, you can't imagine, maybe a $100 billion foundation. Well, 5% of $100 billion is how much? Right? That's how much they're going to spend a year. The government spends $50 billion. Our government alone spends $50 billion. 
and the Gates Foundation's money is spread on many different areas. So you need major government investment. And you need it over a long time. And you need it not just for the research that you think is obvious. You need it to educate people starting grade five or even younger. You need a huge investment for STEM research, technological literacy in the general population. Plus, you need government research. But government research does not develop drugs. I mean, it was a big realization to me. I came from a very funny background. My dad was a weapons scientist, and we were totally socialist. Everything was government. There was no business, right? Except maybe if you wanted to get your shoe repaired, right, or your dry cleaning done. I was on a military base, even though my dad was a civilian. So for me, the whole world of you know, economics and finance was kind of new. I had to learn it. And I was shocked to realize when I was a professor that we didn't make drugs. They came from the pharma industry. And then when the biotech opportunities came along, I realized, gee, that's something I could do too. So I started creating biotech companies. And that was great investment. There's a point I'd like to make that's a very contemporary point on this. You need private investment to make products. Professors aren't any good at that, and we're not set up to do that. It's a completely different institution. So if you want products and you want marketing, you have to go to the private sector. That's the only place that can do that. The only reason the Soviet Union could have drugs at all is they copied what we did. They didn't invent anything, yes. right? I knew those guys. I had them on my lab. They didn't invent things. They copied them. Um, so what's happening right now? Science depends on international cooperation. Science has always been an international, even from its very earliest days, an international, where ideas would pop up all over. And it doesn't matter where the ideas are. We share our ideas. And the idea that scientists hold on to their ideas is completely nuts. We only exist because we get credit for what we do. And the only way we get credit for what we do is if we tell people what we've done, right? So we share our ideas, lickety-split. The best thing the Swedes ever did is invent the Nobel Prize because everybody with a new idea runs to Sweden hoping that they'll recognize it was a brand new idea and give them a Nobel Prize, right? So we share our ideas like crazy. And we need to share ideas. And we share people back and forth. We share investment across borders. What's happened in the United States and China war? Well, we're threatening to cut off half of our brilliant students that come from China that are driving innovation in this country. We are surely cutting off capital for investment. And Chinese investment in the United States has dropped 90%. I've had to close a company here in the United States because I had $30 million of investors in Chinese money that, poof, evaporated. And I'm not the only one. A lot of people have had that experience. What's happening? People want to set that same company up in China. In China, US loses, China wins. But does China really win? No, because it needs us as much as we need them in terms of our intellectual growth and the creation of our companies. So it is a very, from my perspective, a very sad thing that we're cutting off investment in exactly, I call it, and what the Chinese were willing to do is something I call uh, putting a bridge over the valley of death. They were willing to invest at very, very early stages, which despite the brave venture capitalists are usually not willing to do. Once you get a prototype, they'll invest. But from the idea to the prototype, there's a big, deep valley. And the Chinese were bridging that for us, Chinese money. So you do need private money. Uh, and you need private investment. There's room for both. OK, I think we're uh, out of time. We're going right into the next panel. So. Um, Please join me, warm hand, Dr. Bill, amazing. <laughs>